Welcome back to Advis After Hours, a podcast focused on the intersection of innovation, finance, and community. Today, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Eddie Moreton, president of Lift Orlando, a local nonprofit focused on bringing residents, community partners, and business leaders together toward the revitalization of the historic Westlakes communities. We sat down with Eddie at their brand new Heart of Westlakes Wellness Center. So let's join the conversation over there. Eddie, it's great to have you on the podcast today. This has been a long time coming, I think. And so we're very excited. Lift um, the mission here and yourself is really kind of the epitome of what we thought of when we started the podcast. Um, and we're sitting here at the new headquarters. Oh, man, guys, it's really a privilege for me. Thank you so much for spotlighting us this way. So glad to be here with you. When we started to develop this idea, you were one of the people on the original list we wanted to speak with because the folks we're talking to are... Um, you know, business owners in the community. That's a lot of people we built this content for. And I think your message and what you're doing and your intentionality and helping them better this community um, is kind of where we want to start to direct the conversation. So uh, can't wait to get into all that. But as we always start, just chronologically, give us a little background about yourself and where you came from and how you got to Orlando. Oh man, thank you so much. And I, I love that you guys have a passion for that intersection for business leaders who really understand the realm of innovation and community. Cause uh, personally, that's been a little bit of a kind of my heartbeat, why, why I do Lift Orlando. And um, this work is just one expression of how business leaders really play a pivotal role in impacting communities for good. And I think for me, that's been sort of a little bit of my life calling is if I were to describe my mission in life is to inspire and equip leaders to make a difference. But I particularly mean that for business leaders, though I try to wear that hat in every role I'm in. That's kind of what I'm trying to do with my kids, with my wife and everywhere I'm at with my friends is to inspire and equip leaders to make a difference somehow. Uh, so that the fact that that's kind of your focus and your jam uh, puts us in the same club, guys. <laughs> that's amazing. I feel like we need to steal that mission. That'll be a soundbite later. For yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. No, oh, thank so, you. And you're, you're from Orlando, correct? No, no. Actually, no? I was born in D.C. Okay. Uh, been in Orlando since 1990 now. Okay. Uh, had an opportunity in the mid-90s to work for Jacob Stewart over at the Chamber of Commerce. So back then, that was the hub of the business community. Really, I mean, you really right. had all the leaders of all the major employers sitting at that table. And Jacob, I didn't realize, I was just kind of fortunate to uh, work for him and learn uh, from him, but really had a unique talent for convening the community around community issues and getting business leaders to get involved of all ranks and heights from all the big players and popular names to people who were lesser known. But there was this almost pipeline of leadership talent that was really developing an appetite for not just networking and growing their business and making money, but using that and the audience it creates for you, the access to somehow advance good in the community. Uh, so that idea that uh, it's good for business to seek the good of the community, uh, or as um, 
uh, Gray, uh, Gray Robinson, uh, Charlie Gray, who was just one of these wise voices I got to meet uh, during that season and I always appreciate uh, his axioms. He has this line that he would use talking about the firm that if you build a community, the community will build your firm. Mm-hmm. Well, you could fill, that. replace firm with any business or right. agency or whatever you're working in. You build a community and the community will build your business. So you got to Orlando in 1990, you yeah. said? So when you moved to Orlando, where... Not everyone who listens to this is from Central Florida. Oh, so yeah, I like yeah. to give people a layout of, because they just think Disney. I want, right. them, to, I want them to understand where know, the, what Orlando so looks funny. like. Yeah, yeah and, and back then, you know, in the 90s, uh, Church Street Station is just a road to most people now. But Church Street Station was like a thing mm-hmm. in the 90s. In fact, I do remember somebody telling up in 1997, maybe, uh, we had as many visitors to Church Street Station as we did to Disney. I mean, really? Was that many people came to Church Street Station. Uh, Disney is much bigger now. There's more things to do there, but the the move to build uh, what's now Disney Springs, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. when it was downtown Disney, and then CityWalk Universal doing that, like that began to diffuse uh, the capacity for the theme parks uh, to lose people to go downtown. So more and more people never leave park properties when they come. Uh, but that was that was really, really interesting. Orlando has changed so much uh, in that way. But one of the things remains the same. I was just talking with a new uh, business leader here in town. They're expanding uh, their operations here. And they were reflecting on this impression about Orlando that I've always been very proud about here. Uh, and it's the fact that it's the kind of town, we may have some form of a good old boy network like every town uh, does. And yet, if you're a new voice and you've got good ideas and you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get to work, you find a seat at the table. Mm, uh, right. like there's a place for you to contribute. And that's actually really rare. It's very hard to find that. And I think uh, we pride ourselves in collaboration a lot. And I think it creates an appetite for new ideas uh, and new voices. So uh, I will say that um, from a journey perspective, one of the things I look back on that uh, are a little bit of a backdrop to the work that we do today uh, was a project we did in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was a first public-private partnership uh, with the state of Florida that the chamber did where Jacob uh, kind of pitched this idea based on the fact that Clinton had passed legislation uh, that people that were on welfare had to start proving they were trying to go back to work. Meanwhile, in Orlando, we had like 2.4% unemployment. It was very reminiscent of where we are today. Mm. People, you couldn't find folks. In fact, you could fog a mirror, you could get a job. Right. It was, employers right. were desperate. And here was this sort of atypical pool of a workforce that had been untapped. And so we uh, trained thousands of CEOs and HR directors on how to hire, train, and retain employees. And then Lockheed Martin uh, had a contract to run CareerSource uh, in town. And so that all the uh, uh, unemployment offices, whatever they were called back then, right. they, so they had the people right. that now had to kind of show up at their offices. And we were just trying to get employers to be warm and open to working with them. Uh, and man, just a fantastic job by that agency and that collaboration to employ thousands of people over a handful of years. And I remember thinking, man, this is just one small sample of problems the business community can help solve. If folks would just pay attention and right. realize that they have a unique role to play. A lot of times we look to the government, we look to nonprofits, we look to other sectors and forget that because business leaders are so uniquely influential in their community, even if just by virtue of their networks, they have an advantage at tackling complex problems. But most of the time they have to get their heads out of the sand about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you you just reminded me. So we had Tom Sidema on our podcast previously talking about Lyft. And it's exactly what you're talking about. He was new to town saw where we're sitting right now, this area of town is wondering, why is no one investing in this area? 
you know, building that community up. And it's exactly what you're talking about. That's exactly right. And honestly, I always credit Tom as our founder, or as I like to put it, our chief instigator. At <laughs> he was really so worked up about that. You know, fast forward 2012, he's new to town. He's wondering like, why is the, the gap is so great once you cross a railroad track right. between downtown and the West side. And there's a whole history to why that's the case. And it's no, um, it's not an accident that there, that pattern is consistent around the country. But for him, he was just trying to find if anybody cared. Uh, and so as he stirred that pot around town, some people you know, were inspired, some were offended by it, but, but it got us all to rally. Uh, and so we spent a good year uh, just meeting about every six weeks. We read books together. We traveled to different cities, brought down experts, mm. got inspired. One of our uh, longtime mentor and friend who's a leader in this space, Bob Lupton, uh, he wrote a great book called Toxic Charity that we mm -hmm. used to give away like it was hot bread. Uh, and he said to us once, listen, I... Um, really don't think that if you want to make a difference in these communities, what you need are necessarily a ton of programs and services. That's not what's of greatest need. What we need most are caring and connected neighbors. And it's such a cute uh, line, but it was also so profoundly right. wise. Uh, and he told us, I'll just tell this quick story. He shared, he had moved into the inner city of Atlanta 40 years before it was cool. Uh, and is trying to do good work to help people there in their community. And he realized a lot of his uh, neighbors need better employment. And so he decides he's going to start an employment program. He he goes on to research and read books yeah. and call friends. But around the same time, his son is looking for a job. So he mentions it to a friend at church that is the HR lady for the local zoo, sends his son over, meets with her. She hires him. So a few days later, he's playing basketball in the neighborhood. He's like, hey guys, I can't play next week because I got a job. They're like, you got a job? Where'd you get a job? So before you know it, five other kids in the neighborhood are working at Very the zoo. Cool. Meanwhile, Bob's still trying to figure out how to start an employment program. <laughs> and it sort of dawned on him, you know, many of us lose our job today. Even if it takes us months to land the next thing, it'll be your network that opens that door. Mm -hmm. It's having a network of people who are connected and have access to things that you don't. That's what makes the American dream work in this country. Absolutely. And too many people are disconnected from that, oddly enough, by geography in the urban core. And so I like to say we're like a, a very uh, complex and expensive way of just getting people reconnected again. I love that. So it's coming up on the 10-year anniversary, That's right? crazy. Yeah. Um, and so kind of take us back to that start like you were. And I, probably the days with Tom going around and doing research was probably previous to 2013, I imagine, or right around then. I'm glad that we really um, took the journey that we took because it led to the gift that it's now for us, the, the Lyft method. Lyft has become our name and it's what we, we use it as a verb uh, in the way that we describe what we do. We want to help lift the community. We believe that a city is only as strong as the strength of its neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So if you love Orlando and more than half of our children that are in vulnerable conditions are living in neighborhoods that have been underinvested over time. If you just focus on those few places, you actually have the biggest bang for the buck and have the greatest impact mm -hmm. on the region as a whole. Right. But that's still very counterintuitive. It's not how most of the nonprofit philanthropic community works because we're also trying to kind of boast big numbers so we can impress right. donors wide and, reports yeah. and cast wide nets when really hyper-local, super-focused approach is actually going to yield the greatest impact over time. Right. Uh, but- to learn that, we actually kept um, trying to um, take measures against the hubris of a room full of CEOs and type A personalities like Tom and the rest of the group that, you know, we want to see results tomorrow, maybe two weeks ago. Right. Um, and we kept repeating these four phrases. And we finally asked a committee to come up with a name <clears throat> for what we were doing. 
still no intentions of starting a nonprofit, mm -hmm. uh, but just because our calendars all said something different, <laughs> um, they came back, hey, we keep repeating these four things. We They kind of spell the word lift. Uh, and the four things were, um, we're going to learn. We kept saying, we're going to spend time learning. We're going to figure out what is the root cause of the problem. Uh, there's things that seem obvious to us, but if we really scratch a little bit deeper, we hear about crime, but then turns out 70% of the crimes are committed by high school dropouts. Mm. <laughs> so we're like, oh, well, education is the thing. And then well, you come and visit the school and that particular year, that third grade classroom had 100% turnover. Well, wait a minute, it's the, the teachers are doing an awesome job, but the neighborhood, the housing is really mm -hmm. unstable across the street. So people are having to move around and parents are choosing different places to take their kids. And so you start to find out that the housing and the healthcare and the workforce and all these things are connected. Right. Um, so we said, we're going to need to identify uh, what works, who has figured that out. And that's where we discovered the uh, folks at Purpose Built Communities and uh, their efforts and not only the things they had done right, but all the things they had done wrong that they were so liberal to share, like here are things that we would like to do better. We want to, uh, other communities to take advantage of our lessons that once you start to invest in real estate, you're also going to attract a lot of gentrification and folks who do not have good intentions for the community. Mm -hmm. How do you counter that? How do you get ahead of that? And then we would ultimately focus. We'd find a model, find a part of town, find a group of people. We would specifically, by name and last name, think about these families and how we serve their success, uh, not just trying to crank people through a program for the success of the program. Right. Um, and then ultimately, we would use uh, a business-driven commitment to results and measurement and data and evaluation to make sure that we're succeeding at actually solving a problem. So T would serve... Uh, of the word for the word transformation that we would seek genuine legitimate transformation. So learn, identify, focus, transform has really became for us, and now we are we're trying to sort of share with others uh, this model for social innovation for how you think about complex social problems and engage with enough humility and enough commitment and investment to see change. Right. So in the in the past, you know, ten years since you all were founded, what has your success looked like? I mean, we're sitting in this brand new, beautiful building. What has the progression of Lyft's involvement in this community? Specifically, is it 32805? Yeah. Specifically 32805. Camping World Stadium, um, just west of downtown, almost exactly a mile uh, from downtown. Church Street connects most of our venues. So you've got to the furthest west, Camping World Stadium. Then you you cross OBT heading east towards downtown yep. and you hit the soccer stadium. Then you go a few blocks down, you hit the Amway uh, Arena. And then you get to Orange Avenue and you're two blocks from Dr. Phillips Performing Arts Center, right? Uh, so- here, however, there is this fantastic history. Uh, and one day, I hope to shine a bright light on it because I think something everyone in Orlando would be proud of. Uh, 32805 contains a three-chapter chronology of the Black community in Central Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, our first uh, kind of formal Black settlement uh, was Jonestown. Uh, it right. was actually on the east side of Orlando uh, before cities began to see it in vogue to move folks to a certain mm -hmm. sort of segregated mm -hmm. part uh, of town. And so we had a Mayor James B. Paramore uh, here in the late 1800s who uh, that area, the road was named after, and then eventually we all started calling the area that. But those were about half a dozen black neighborhoods that because they were segregated, you had all kinds of people living there. And in fact, Alzaretic lives uh, three blocks from where we're sitting right now as a legend in this town, first black state representative uh, in Florida, uh, till, I mean, not so long ago, used to run an organization that recruited veterans to walk children to school in the wow. mornings, uh, retired from UCF. Uh, he said to me once that when he grew up in Paramore, 
His neighbors were a citrus picker, a maid, a mechanic, but across the street, there were two doctors and a lawyer. <laughs> and so in that environment, he knew he could be anyone. Right. And the so for him, when we were talking about mixed income housing early on, and some people were looking at me like I got three heads, and he was like, I get it. Like, that's what we need. And so uh, something similar, akin to that, uh, uh, in great, uh, at a great degree, in a way that was really unique at its time, happened on the far west side of 32805. So if you know where John Young Parkway is, uh, if you were coming west from downtown, you could take Church Street all the way through right. to John Young. John Young was really expanded in the 90s. Uh, it was a small road uh, before then. And that whole side puts you into formerly Washington Shores. Uh, up until the 90s, this whole area was kind of greater Washington Shores. Mm -hmm. Well, Washington Shores was one of the first black suburbs in the South where you could buy land, build, build a home as big as you wanted. Uh, we had all kinds of professionals here. The Jones High School moved in the area during uh, that period. You had people that were able to kind of build big homes, small homes, live in apartments. These apartments were the first apartments with central air conditioning. Most of the people who lived here were educators, proud families. You used to brag that right. you lived on Orange Center Boulevard. Wow. Uh, the first hospital to provide acute care. So if you needed surgery or, or, or to birth a, a child uh, for African-Americans with African-American doctors. And the first bank in the whole state of Florida dedicated to lending to African-Americans was Washington Shores Federal Savings and Loans. I mean, it was such wow. a weird yeah. deal for 1949, 51, 52, that the uh, housing authority, which is now HUD, uh, would publish articles in periodicals across the South promoting the Orlando experiment. Because, mm. uh, I mean, it was still, let's not fool ourselves, it was still a separate but equal idea, but it was more equal than most things going on at that time. All that is in the zip code. And then between John Young and OBT, when we started engaging the community, candidly, residents and homeowners here said, you know, we're not, we're not, we're related to Paramore, right? We, many of us have, you know, grandparents who live in Paramore or parents maybe. Uh, and many of them were the children of the generation that built Washington Shores, but we're kind of different. Um, and so they really set boundaries to say that everything south of High Colonial Drive, which is the northern boundary of 32805 between it and 32804, where College Park and the Country Club of Orlando are, uh, but west of OBT, so on the other side of Paramore, mm -hmm. and east of John Young Parkway, this way of Washington Shores, would now be the communities of Westlakes. Uh, because they each had all these great uh, homeowners associations and neighborhoods that would become this one identity. So we we kind of name things after that in honor of that decision of residents. And so we've been also pushing its popularity. So we've gotten the media and the mayor to kind of reference West Lakes. Right. But most people are like, have no idea where that is because it didn't right. exist before 2014. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of a lot of Orlando's developing new names yes, and all yes. that kind of stuff. But you just brought up something I think fascinating. A question a lot of people have is, you know, how do you get, how do you start going out in the community, building that trust, oh. getting people to utilize, you know, you built all these incredible facilities and assets. I know the story, I want you to talk about kind of when you built the apartments over here, the demand was insane. I forget the numbers on it, but I imagine there's a huge demand, but also work to do in, in getting people here too. It's crazy. You know, one of our metrics we're so proud about is not only seeing, so We've seen a hundred new jobs, uh, full-time jobs created in the neighborhood if we count the jobs that we're opening up in this building. That's, awesome. that's 
after a, you know a thousand jobs overall with all the projects that have been kind of part of the development, uh, an, income, an increase in per capita income of ten thousand uh, dollars on average in the neighborhood, which is huge, closing the gap between incomes mm -hmm. in the county and the zip code, um, and the dramatic result of see, watching children rise out of poverty 16 times faster uh, than the county average. And so those impacts are great things that are what we hope to see happen here. But when you're starting out, it's just nothing but hot air and ideas and good intentions. And you're talking to people who have heard a lot of right. other folks show up with right. big smiles and a lot of big promises. And so when they when they either don't trust you or call you names or, <laughs> or counter you, it's for good reason. It feels unfair at times, but if you're going to do this kind of work, you need to realize you are stepping on ground that it has been has had so much distrust uh, that that's the context, right? That you're entering into, and so at the end of the day, uh, trying to do the best you can to deliver on everything you say, which is particularly hard when you don't even know how you're going to do right. everything you say. <laughs> I mean, we were saying we wanted to build uh, mixed income housing. We want to do something better there. We didn't even control the land. We didn't have the money to do it. We didn't have the power to do that, but we we were willing to go after it. And you kind of have to be willing to say, this is the vision. This is what I want to do. You might fail and you might disappoint yourself and other people in the process, but somebody has to be willing to galvanize the hopes and dreams of people. And I think the, the residents that rose up here that said, hey, we care about making sure we write a better future for our community. And we have no way of knowing if Lift Orlando or the stadium are going to be good for us or not, but we want to be at the table. We want to have the conversations. We want to have the debates. I mean, they're the real heroes of the story because at the end of the day, so much of the change is both ignited by humble things that require little more than manpower from right. the street teams that knocked on doors and did surveys to even today, the, the nonprofit started by residents that's fixing up single family homes and making them available for sale for families. Mm -hmm. that, but in ongoing, the future power of the neighborhood is in how many children grow up witnessing their parents and family members contributing in a positive way to the well-being of their neighbors and their community. Like that's what builds the DNA and psyche of being a positive influence in your community. And so there's so many examples, a long legacy of that here. The apartments were such a touchy subject because people who uh, remember what it used to be were so proud of that heritage. And it was so sad to see it mismanaged over and over mm -hmm. again. Uh, and yet many people during those mismanaged years had, uh, that was a place of last resort, a place you could afford uh, to live in. And so you still have memories there. You still have sentiments there. Right. So when Fannie Mae shut down the apartments, they vacated them, gave people like 500 bucks and 45 days to move out or something. Um, then uh, we were able to acquire it thanks to the leadership of the city because we were getting nowhere with Fannie Mae at the time. And uh, the city stepped up and helped that occur. When we did that and did the demolition, I remember on that day, somebody like posted a video on their iPhone and it had like hundreds of thousands of comments. And I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of shares really? and just people uh, who had memories there, who had lived there at some point, who had just emotional connections to it. Many people were like, happy to see it mm. go down, right? Because there was so much blight and crime mm. and issues there because it was so mismanaged, but it, it was sentimental. And what I realized was that context, um, really opens your eyes to the fact that even well-intended work can have unintended consequences. I mentioned how we learned from our friends at Eastlake at Purpose Built Communities that the power of this kind of investment also attracts more investment that may or may not right. be good for the community. Right. Uh, simultaneously, even as we do our work, 
it is disruptive, right? It's disruptive. Right. Even if for a lot of our neighbors, they they're living in the home their parents built or bought, and they've been here, and they yeah, they're maybe glad that the apartments are not what they used to be, but it doesn't change their living condition. And maybe yeah. they're retired, and they don't have kids that are going to go to the boys and girls club or come to the early learning center. And this building is so important for us in one way. Uh, because it is the first thing we build that is actually for everybody in the community. It's mm. it's for the children, for the adults, for the grandparents, for the people who are well off, for the people that are not. That This is the kind of place where everybody can find something that they could enjoy because there's still a lot of people, some of the folks that have been more available and active that don't really benefit directly from much of what we've done because they maybe have not in need or not in the category of that program. Right. They didn't need a new apartment. Right. Uh, so this is we're on a high about this because it's something that really brings everybody in the community together, which is why the name, honestly, along with the decor and everything in this place was chosen by residents uh, to be called the heart of Westlakes mm. uh, for that reason. Love that. Yeah, I remember you moved into the apartments initially and the whole thought process, I remember you can speak on it was, Showing a good example, someone going to work, wearing a tie every day, and just trying to be that example to show the other kids living there. You know, it's so funny. Is the there's something about that whole mixed income idea that I right. think for us, the philosophy of it was certainly getting people to be together in a mixed income environment and not allowing our children because you've got some poorly managed apartments to right. feel like everyone they know is stuck in the same. Uh, situation. And, you know, it's not just the the good example or the inspiring uh, sort of model that that provides. Honestly, kids look at you and me and they go like, wait a minute, if that guy can be successful, surely I can do it. It just <laughs> sort of normalizes True. success, right? Like I, I yeah. know a doctor, that's no big deal. Right. I know a lawyer, exactly. right? And so we had some of those already in the community. Candidly, I thought we were going to set an example for people outside because we needed those uh, market rate units, right? Units that were intended for people who made more money yeah. to fill up so yep. that you could create that Mexican environment. Mm -hmm. So I thought we'd be the first, we'll take the first market rate unit yeah. and we'll show, hey, this place is good enough for our family. Actually, the housing crisis is such in Central Florida <laughs> that the market rate units, because they actually required less paperwork and documentation to prove you make less than a certain right, amount, right. those flew off the shelf like hotcakes, man. Right. I mean, it was really kind of a silly thing. There's like thousands of, of people applying, right? For a couple hundred units? 15,000 inquiries for 200 units. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, and we still we still need, we could use a thousand more pandanas in Central Florida, right. really. There's a specific program you all have that I took interest in. I think Jeff and I are big on education, specifically mm. for us, financial literacy. Mm. We do some work on Mercy Drive doing financial literacy classes. Cool. Um, but one that piqued my interest was the cradle to career pipeline and program you have. So just maybe touch on that and what you're trying to accomplish there. Oh man, the, the year we started, the federal government had just wrapped up the largest longitudinal study of a federally funded program. And the program was Head Start. And they found that Head Start was successful. Kids were being prepared to start school, uh, able to learn with the fundamentals and basics they need to do that. But when you didn't study the program and follow the people, the individual children, the uh, 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 sad majority had, because they were receiving Head Start support in neighborhoods where they were going to schools, they were underfunded, under-resourced. Too often, by the time they got to third grade, were so far behind, it was as if they never had Head Start. Mm -hmm. 
And so this idea that, man, it is a major trajectory shifter to provide a child the proper foundation early on in life, because though the losses there are so great. People talk about the 20 million word gap, the children in families were, that do not have access to higher education or higher incomes and opportunities experience a, a lesser exposure to the vocabulary that helps build their brain so that they can thrive in school. Mm -hmm. So that early learning stuff, super foundational, really, really important. And yet, if you're not building the whole track of education so that you are continually building upon that foundation, um, you can still have children miss out on the opportunities for success. So uh, for us here, that's looked like I mentioned our early learning center mm -hmm. and now the kind of network of early learning providers. Uh, the ideal is to kind of mimic that as well with our elementary uh, school ages. And so that's a big part of our next push at Lift Orlando is advancing upon the investments we've made here with Orange Center Elementary, Legends Academy, but we begin to expand that with a kind of a hub and spoke approach mm -hmm. that where you have a sort of flagship facility that creates resources, professional development, training, and access to opportunities that our public schools wouldn't always have. Uh, and then you would, in essence, over time, transform the entire pipeline of talent that comes up to Jones High School. Uh, and at Jones High School, this year, we took our first little kind of dipped our toe in the water of something we've wanted to do for a long time is scholarships. Uh, and the desire to be able to provide financial support for students to go to great schools by working with the half a dozen fantastic programs that were already there, all of them fit a unique part of the puzzle. Right. What we were finding is nationwide, 70% of students almost, or at least a majority of first-time college students that even on a full ride, don't finish college uh, because the pressures back at home, if their family is struggling with poverty or with shortcomings financially and otherwise, and that student's trying to make a new life for themselves, there's almost guilt associated mm -hmm. with all the support that they're receiving when I know my mom's trying to keep the lights on right. or trying Absolutely. to keep food on the table. And so many of them will succumb. Plus you feel like a fish out of water. It's a new experience. You're the only one that's doing this that you know. And so it's easy to buy your first or second semester to drop out, to tell yourself you'll come back and do it one day and then just go work to help support your family. Well, what we wanna do is not only identify our students earlier and then begin to, because of all the things we already do, provide all these wraparound supports for their family, make sure they get all the scholarships they deserve and have access to, go to college and then stick with them and their families throughout so that they know they can focus on education because we're focused on making sure mom and dad and children and siblings are succeeding and then watch them graduate and support families. We are, our vision statement is neighborhoods where children grow up with hope and return with joy. So this idea that the neighborhood would not become a place that, you know, you get out of the neighborhood, right. as they say, and everybody actually is proud of you that you kind of escape. No, this would be the kind of place where like some of the residents who have done it here by choice, but the, actually most people would live here and by virtue of living here have so many opportunities they succeed. And when they have plenty of money, plenty of options that they could choose to live in any neighborhood. And they're looking around and they're mm -hmm. like, man, I can't find a better place than the neighborhood where I grew up. I want to raise my kids there. Man, you know, a lot is pretty awesome about that neighborhood. Uh, that's really our ultimate goal. Yeah. They, they come back, they apply those skills. Yes. And then Generational wealth is built. Exactly. Yeah. I like that you said generational wealth because I think oftentimes people see wealth as the assets you have. Um, I can go out right now and buy a Ferrari, but I probably will have, you know, $150,000 of debt on a $155,000 car. <laughs> um, 
wealth is looking at your net worth and looking at how long standing that wealth will be, which goes to your your second and your third generations. And to your point, if you can bring those skills and those that wealth back to the community, mm-hmm. now you have kind of a compounding effect in the future. Absolutely it's a snowball right. effect. That's absolutely right. And you know, and you you learn in life that wealth is most measured not by the zeros in your bank account, but by the caliber of the people in your mm-hmm. life. Right. And when you are able to both be that for others and surround yourself with that, uh, there's a former mayor of Albuquerque, uh, David Burke. He became a senator and is a kind of urbanist today. But he, years ago, um, wrote a book. And in it, I think it was called The Inside Game, Outside Game. It was about community development and economic mm-hmm. development in cities. And there's a line in there where he describes trying to help entire communities rise out of poverty is akin to trying to help people run up a downward escalator. Mm. Think about that visual. I kind of describe it as the escalator effect. Mm. That the, you know, people talk about the sequence. The um, There was a research institute years ago that talked about what later got nicknamed as the success sequence. They found that in trying to prove whether the American dream was still alive or not, um, most children, even growing up in neighborhoods where they were experiencing poverty, if they could just graduate from high school, go to college, land a job, and then start a family. Do those things in that order and not get them out of order. On average, they would join the middle class. They were in the 90th percentile of doing so. In fact, forget college. They just, you know, graduate, Mm -hmm. get a job, then start a family. They're in the 75th percentile, something like that. They, um, that got touted a lot, especially by a lot of conservative pundits. Like, you know, people need to stop complaining about circumstances Mm, and injustice and whatever. Like, really, you just need to make good choices. What it didn't take into account is that there are some places where the lack of resources and investment and access make it so difficult to do those things. If if success in the American dream worked like an escalator, the escalator is either stuck or moving down. And I don't know if you, as a kid, you ever tried to run up a downward escalator. It's kind of fun to <laughs> do one time, right? Yeah. You know, but to live on one is a right. whole other thing that, you know, for for a child at the bottom of the totem pole, economically, racially, socially, man, you'd have to be focused, determined, work hard, put this above and beyond effort every day, have a great teacher, a mentor, right. a praying grandmother, maybe two of those to make it out. Because right. you're getting the setbacks along yeah, the way. So so there's keep... all these set- So you have to be moving forward at right. a faster pace than all the tough things coming at you. And so- when people are successful and they escape really, really tough neighborhoods anywhere in the country, there's a sense of pride and achievement that not even they feel, but they, they might feel, but mm-hmm. people also celebrate vicariously for them. Like, oh my gosh, she got out, he got out. And they rarely come even come back to those communities. But man, if you just cross the road, you're in a different zip code where the average child is graduating from high school, going to college, landing a job, starting a family, no superhuman effort required. In right. fact, it's like right. the typical expectation mm-hmm. of every family, every teacher, mm-hmm. that every kid in this classroom is probably going to do that. Some are going to make different choices and it's America. You can still choose to ruin your life. Right. You can jump off right. the, uh, the upward escalator if you want. But that for us is the simplest definition of justice, right? Like that the, the average outcome in the neighborhood is that you don't have to exercise superhuman effort and determination to be successful. I like to joke around that part of America's gift to the world is that we invented a way to be great by being average. (laughs) (laughs) We created great outcomes, opportunities, and access to great wealth to the average person. And that, before our system of government and economy, that was not a thing. Right. 
You had to be a landed baron, monarchy, some aristocrat, but the fact that we would wanna design a government and economic system for the average citizen to own property, build wealth, pass that on to future generations was a super novel innovation that we may not have done it equally for everybody and we right. still have a lot of good work to do, but that that's really what the promise is that we wanna to start to fulfill for people in every neighborhood. And so if Orlando is prospering, and it is in so many ways, why are we leaving so many people behind? Mm. Uh, and there's a significant number of them in just a few specific places. We know where they are. There are 10 high priority neighborhoods in Orange County. We can get after those places and closing the gap so that people are at least prospering or riding up the upward escalator uh, on average with everybody else. You still have individual responsibility. You can choose to walk down, jump off, whatever you right. want. But if, you, if we can create, if we live in a country that's so amazing, where you, by just showing up, all right, and not making really terrible choices, you can be okay. Right. Man, let's make that at least available to everybody. Right. So for those of us who aren't in the 32805 zip code, how can we support this community mm. and support you all? Mm. What are the easiest ways, whether it's time-wise, financially, skills? Tell the story. Mm -hmm. uh, we need more people to understand the value of being a caring and connected neighbor. Uh, that caring about specific places in your city, you don't have to save everybody in the community. But maybe there's a neighborhood, maybe there's a school next to your headquarters or near your kid's school or next to you where you live that you and others could say, we wanna volunteer there, we wanna get involved there. We'd love to see people do that here. There are ways to serve in our schools and our Boys and Girls Club and this place. And we wanna ramp up more and more of those opportunities. Candidly, we balance those out with the fact that we really prioritize neighbors caring for neighbors mm -hmm. in their own neighborhood. So. Mm. Most things around here, if it just requires manpower, we'd rather see a resident mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. You know, if that resident needs help, needs a coach, needs a mentor, or somebody to just kind of roll up their sleeves with them, awesome. What we don't want is sort of people outside the neighborhood fixing problems that belong to the neighborhood if right. someone in the neighborhood could fix that problem. Because then it's not just that right. you're doing something, um, you, you, well, the Bob used to always say, as a principle to not do for others what others could do for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's to him was the definition of toxic charity. If you were stepping in in ways that they shouldn't. Or a phrase we like to quote a lot here, I think it was Mahatma Gandhi who first said, what you do for me without me, you do to me mm. and so, or do against me. And so this idea that we need to create environments where people are able to flex and show what they can do and demonstrate to the, their loved ones that they are committed and invested in that positive change. But we love inviting people to like, who might serve on committees, provide advisory, mentor our small businesses, coach, mentor, read to kids. There are plenty of ways uh, to do that for sure. And financially support uh, what we're doing, not just for our sake, honestly, what we are hoping to do is create a stronghold of resources here that helps seed this work in other neighborhoods, both in Central Florida mm. and around our state. For years, we've always had kind of an open door policy. If you're trying to do this in Tampa, you're trying to do this in Miami, Jacksonville, whatever, like, come on down, check it out. Uh, I, I'll share with you how we think about housing, how we think about economic development, how we think about education. Because yeah. I really believe this is the next wave of community development. Um, Steve um, Case, the founder of AOL, yeah. um, and his amazing wife, Jean Case, they've written many books and uh, they still have revolution companies and all their investments there and a lot of great things they do at their foundation as well. I think one of the leading voices in that intersection of uh, sort of social impact and for-profit yes. and investing yep. in philanthropy. But he wrote a book a few years ago called uh, The Third Wave. It's a title he kind of ripped off, he says, from another older book. But uh, he talks about the three waves of the internet, AOL being wave one, people being connected around the globe, 
Web 2.0, suddenly everybody can do commerce, have the internet in your back pocket with the iPhone. And you know, 3.0, as it rises, he predicts will have not only all the great security benefits and other advantages, but a, a greater relevance to common social problems, that we will see new solutions leveraging the internet to solve real world challenges and problems. And some people have talked about the evolution from 2.0 to 3.0, uh, it's sort of the advent of that usually gets ushered in with the arrival of platforms. Think of Amazon, right? right. It started out just selling stuff, but now anybody can sell stuff on Amazon. You don't need a website. You don't need your own mm -hmm. review tool. You don't need like all the shopping cart, all that's included. What we hope to do is see if, if community development 1.0 was the 30 year insured, government insured mortgage and public housing in this mm -hmm. country to solve a housing crisis, one of those was life-changing for generations of people. The other one, some would say, maybe did more harm than good in the long run. Uh, 2.0 was the advent of you know low-income housing tax credits, new market tax credits, funding mechanisms right. by the government for local entities to start clinics and schools and after-school programs and build affordable housing. But it's still always been pretty ad hoc and disparate and not connected. Rarely is it part of a master plan. What we're trying to do is do community development with the same intentionality you would develop in the suburbs, a planned community where you're thinking, people are gonna live here. Let's think about their quality of life, where they're gonna work, where they're gonna to go to school, where they're gonna play and design a whole ecosystem. Um, it's still too rare, that kind of work, because it takes a lot of collaboration, a lot of capital, a lot of community engagement, especially if you wanna do it without gentrifying. You wanna do it in a way that invests exactly. in people that are there. And so our hope is to create a place that, um, we want people to support what we're doing to sustain this work long-term, but also to invest in sort of a, a, a foothold in a new sector. Mm -hmm. We describe ourselves as a community quarterback, right? Because really our partners run all the great programs, our residents do all the great work on the ground. Our job is to try to be the glue for all that stuff and share a common vision and goals. We would, I'd love to have a hundred other agencies doing the same thing. Mm. And I think you just touched on kind of quarterbacking all the people and the people in the community. I know there's a lot of people the whole, the partnerships that go into Lyft. Yes. And that's a theme of our podcast for sure. It, everyone who comes on here, it's all about the people. Everyone will say that time and time again, unprovoked and talk about some of the great people that have, have helped get this going. Oh my gosh. Well, last time I was on an interview or something like this, that was a mess because I just ended up getting emotional. You know, some, <laughs> some of the, some of the residents that started out with us, you know, some have passed, you know, but they were people who really gave their lives to this community mm. uh, and served in a sacrificial way. And we're really standing on their shoulders and Lyft Orlando gets a lot of credit for stuff that really other people started before we showed up, you know, from the leaders of the HOAs here, from a lot of the efforts that have been born out of this work. I mean, the, the one of the uh, ladies who was the leader in the HOA right here, um, is, uh, the <laughs> Shirley Bradley, who's like, is what constant encourager and fueler uh, of my heart for this work. She was one of the folks who had more uh, terse opinions about right. our arrival, what we started. And now she's just an amazing uh, cheerleader and friend. Um, uh, Raymer Kelly was uh, a child of this neighborhood, went to Orange Center Elementary, still has his family home here. He was the first to stand up and say, listen, I don't know if this is gonna be good for us or not, but we need to all band together. And, and that, know, the whole naming of Westlakes and them starting a newsletter and eventually Westlakes partnership, the nonprofit they founded, like that really came out of the courage to say, we better lean in 
instead of like stick our heads in the sand, because mm -hmm. uh, the reality is gentrification is coming one way or the other. How do we get ahead of it? Right. Uh, how do we organize in favor of it? Um, our incredible staff, our unbelievable board, the partners on that wall that have supported this. Right. Um, I will say maybe more broadly, there are three three ideas in the spirit of partnership that have been very helpful for us. And one has been the notion of trying to seek a shared voice. And so when we started, uh, we found, and this I credit Phil Hissom, who was the founder of the Polis Institute here in town, run by Dr. Bea Maroon at Polis Institute. They've been a, an amazing resource for us. And his idea of taking dollars we had contracted him with to do some asset mapping and surveying, most of it he spent paying people in the community who were unemployed and trained them on how to do that work professionally, documented cool. it all so they could build a resume. Within a year's time, they were all fully employed, but they conducted the largest urban neighborhood survey done in the city at that time, 1,500 households that got first the first wave of folks sort of engaged in what is happening in my neighborhood. That's what led to our insane amount of engagement. We'd have 100 people, no less than 70 people at a weekly meeting the summer 14. Like, man, in community engagement world, you're happy if a dozen people show up for a meeting. <laughs> right. That is insane. Yeah, uh, It was really, really crazy. But the idea of finding a shared voice, we need to spend more time hearing, and we're always working on that. It's very easy in this work, especially when you're doing development. It's so intense and demanding. You can get ahead of people, and you need to stop and listen and sync up again. Like, there's, We're constantly trying to figure out how to do better and better at building trust, at having a shared voice about what we and then shared values. Um, one of the people who had a lot of influence on me early on, Noel Khalil, is a, our joint venture partner for the housing. Uh, for 30 years, they're an award-winning developer and mixed income affordable housing. And if you ask uh, Noel, like, hey, what do you what do you do for a living? I hear you're you're like a developer. No, I build cathedrals for God's children. That's what he would say. Uh, he doesn't just do housing. <laughs> uh, but I called him once because somebody looked at me like I was crazy describing mixed income housing and literally said to me like, how the heck are you going to get high income people to live next door to those people? And I, I don't even remember how I reacted to that. <laughs> I was going to say, what you <laughs> yeah, said? That's that's exactly. <laughs> I was talking to Noel like a week later. I was like, Noel, this happened to me. And I, I mean, you must have had people say something like that to you over the years. And he just started laughing. He's like, Eddie, you can mix incomes all day long. What you can never mix are values. Mm. The values of wanting to be in a quiet, clean, safe community where right. children can run around safely, you respect your neighbor's property. That transcends income levels. There are people of all mm. amounts of money who want the same thing. In fact, there are people who make a ton of money. You never want to be their next right. door neighbor because they don't <laughs> have the same values you do. And the last one is this idea of a shared vision. Like, How do we have something that we hope for, we want? So we define... Uh, uh, we also have, we have our vision statement. I told you neighborhoods where children grow up with hope and return with joy, but we also spent years kind of fine tuning. Well, how will we measure that? What was that? What is the wealth and well-being of Westlakes look like? And that's where we landed on this idea of per capita income increasing at the same rate as the County while retaining the majority of our legacy residents right mm -hmm. now. I can't control right. that. You might choose right. to move. It's a free country, but if we're doing a good job, people don't want to move, right? They believe in what's coming and what's happening here and they want to be part of it. Mm -hmm. So you brought up gentrification a couple of times, mm -hmm. buzzword, right? Yeah. And everyone- Longest four-letter word. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of developers are friends and watch the podcast and real, you're, I mean, these are beautiful developments. And I think you talked about the intentionality behind this, but what do you say to the critics that, oh. you know, I'm sure you just said you get that all the time. Man, if you rewind the tape and you try to understand, well, how did this happen? And we can talk about 
racial injustice and inequality and segregation in right. cities and boundary. I mean, there, there are 150 division avenues all over the country. Right. All built for different reasons at different times, but um, there is a pattern. We, we talk about the other side of the railroad tracks for a reason. Um, and yet, what really the most uh, benign term you can use to describe what's happened is uh, an academic term, disinvestment. Uh, that the lack of investment in a place, while the area around it is getting plenty of it, uh, is what kind of erodes its foundations. And so it's really almost impossible to transform a neighborhood and change outcomes sustainably without transforming the physical environment. When you right. have that much collapsing. And so you cannot do this work without sort of the technical definition of gentrification, which is just the return of investment. That's what it really <laughs> yeah, means. Exactly. But the common experience, it's the arrival of wealthy white people and the pushing out of poor black people. Mm -hmm. You need some form of investment that says, man, we want to invest in this place. We see value for the people who live here and for everybody. Like the, the population here will probably multiply over time. Mm -hmm. But what you want are the people who lived here, who were here in hard times, who built families here, who were willing to work to make the place better, to be able to ride that wave too. I right. mean, who doesn't want a Starbucks? Who right. doesn't want all these wonderful places? Right. And everybody wants that. Right. But most neighborhoods of color, when they see that coming, they know it's a sign for right. something bad. That their days are numbered they're probably not going to be able to afford there much longer. So there's a combination of not just developing stuff, but you have to be actively working to increase the income earning potential capacity and success of your workers and entrepreneurs and protect the interests of the more vulnerable and elderly so that they can mm -hmm. be in a safe place. Because if you can create a safer, more well-lit, more walkable, more healthy access environment, boy, those same folks are going to live so much longer, yeah. live so much better. And there's a Canadian um, city planner that I, I read once say that a city that is good for children is good for everyone. I realize you can say that about the city that is good for the elderly is good for everyone. The city that is good for the disabled is good for everyone. You just fill in that blank with the most vulnerable category you can think of. And you will make decisions that are actually good for everybody, for the able-bodied, for the wealthy, for the young, for the professional. Uh, it'll be something that actually appeals to everyone. And oftentimes, we think so narrowly about who we're serving. And the development space, um, John Crossman, a uh, real estate guy yeah. here in town, he, he likes to say that the lack of diversity in the real estate sector is uh, one of our greatest civil rights issues of our time. You go to a real estate conference these days, you're lucky if you see right. a woman you're lucky if you see right. a person of color. Um, and the need to get a more holistic understanding of cultures and needs and the makeup of the American people in any society, really, in the hearts and minds of people who create the spaces we live in and live by, I think is super important because the, the it, real estate enables community. It's like if you, you want to have a party, but you don't have a dinner table. Like you need the table. You can pull right. off the party. Right. You can figure out yeah. how to do it, but it'd be much better if we could all sit down, enjoy a right. meal and have a conversation. Something about it is more pleasant. And I think if I think real estate developers in particular, people in real estate, real estate fan, finance, construction, mm -hmm. but those minds, uh, when we created these broken spaces, when we built barriers and eroded investment, those were the skills we used. We use real estate, we use finance, we use banking, we use development to draw lines and decide where those investments went and didn't. If we want to reverse uh, that evil, if we want to create a better, brighter future, we want to reverse engineer what happened here, 
those are the tools we need. We, we right. need real estate people. We need developers. We need folks in the world of finance and banking uh, to realize that those are the actual tools that could transform outcomes long-term. So I, I like to say, none of these problems are divine in nature. They're all man-made. Right. <laughs> so, but if they're man-made, it can be man or woman undone. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually in our reach to write a very different story. What's next? Oh man. You've done so much. What's next? Well, I think you touched on it a little bit earlier when you asked about education. We want to continue building the education pipeline, create uh, dramatic outcomes for children to predictably achieve dramatic success here. Uh, our country is capable of that. And these kids are capable of that. And so we just need to connect the mm -hmm. potentiality on both ends and remove the barriers. Um, we certainly want to uh, really invest in this place. I talked about uh, creating out of the residents of Westlakes, the leadership that is in this community, the things we've been able to do together, uh, the spaces and environments that we have, uh, almost an epicenter for this work uh, nationally, but at least in our state, that people would come here and see this and not just leave inspired, but know what to do. And I, I wish I'd had a manual on how to do uh, mixed income affordable housing or how to do an early learning center when we started. Thank goodness for purpose-built communities. They're like this pro bono consulting firm, but I didn't have a way to look step-by-step Here's what I should accomplish. Right. And I probably would not have followed it perfectly, <laughs> but I would have had more confidence out of the gate that, okay, there's a manual to right. do that. Well, and it's, I think it's hard enough on its own, right? Like we talk to entrepreneurs on the podcast all the time and they're like, it's hard enough. I'll give you, I'll tell you how I did it. You still have to go do it yourself. You still, that's, I mean, that really is the hard thing. And there's local context and timing and relationships. You can't predict that. There's no prescription right. for that. Uh, and then I think, you know, I summarize a lot of what's what's next in many ways. More housing, we want to do 10x what we've done so far. Uh, Sandy Hostetter just joined our team. She's been a founding member of our board and maybe one of the most capable and powerful yeah. people when it comes to understanding housing finance in our state. Uh, so she retired from Truist Bank and is now helping us drive, write that new chapter. Uh, the idea of how we, you know, how do we create a platform that enables a faster rate of success for anyone else trying to do this in Central Florida. If we, ha if we have 10 other kind of high priority uh, neighborhoods in Central Florida, man, I'd love to see a community quarterback in every one of them where somebody's waking up every day just thinking about that community. But do they need to reinvent all the back office and the admin and the finance and all the stuff we've had to build mm -hmm. from scratch? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe we can be a way for people to launch from uh, to do that work. I, I hope that that's in our future. And then this idea of the community quarterback being the for the next wave of community development in our country. I think if we can sell this notion of, you know, I think about economic development and our failed attempts at trickle down economics sometimes in that space. And the, the idea that you just need, what's well, like I could have Wi-Fi all over this building, but without a router, right? Unless I'm only going to use one computer, right. <laughs> I need a router to distribute the power of all that connectivity. Same thing with economic development. It's, it's not going to naturally flow to the places where you need it most. And so you need routers that kind of take that growth and then focus. It's almost like a magnifying glass. It takes the power of the sun and just what's, what's a soft glow turns it into a laser beam. We need laser beam focus on these places. And I bet you in less time than we think, we can turn around a lot of the outcomes in Orange County. Mm. So that, that, that I hope is the future is more people uh, drinking that Kool-Aid with us, mm -hmm. singing that tune. <laughs> We've talked about the trajectory of this community, at least your vision for it. But Orlando as a whole, where do you see oh, man. this community going? And also, why is it attractive to move to this area? Orlando is really interesting. I used to say we're kind of a teenage town, you know, sort of looks like an adult, but not really. Right. <laughs> right. I was so hungry to be a world-class city, but we're very much a small uh -huh. town in so many ways. 
I stopped saying that a few years ago. I just feel like we're starting to come into our own. You got more young people like you guys who are saying, why go be an outsider in New York or exactly. Boston when I can be an insider here? You know, and so they're building businesses and families and staying here long and making long-term plans about being here. Like for a long time, we were kind of a stepping stone town. You were here till mm -hmm. Atlanta called or DC called or Dallas or something. Uh, more people are saying, I want to be part of building something here. This uh, COVID accelerated deluge of people mm -hmm. uh, from the North and the West has been crazy. Obviously it's had its negative side effects for, for kind of housing prices and everything else. But I think that's going to present a really interesting factor. It's almost an accelerant to the talent and capabilities that are here. There are people here that uh, people would never have thought of moving down to Florida that are now calling Orlando home. Um, and so I think that's, that's going to be, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some people bought homes thinking differently about the market down here and their availability. Some companies have made that more complicated right. now. Like, oh, if you're committed to being over there, maybe you're not committed to this job over here. Uh, and so that's not true for everybody, but I think that'll be interesting. Um, we are going to continue to grow, I think, at an accelerated rate. We are going to continue to lead the state in some meaningful ways. Um, the question will be is how well do we leverage the ability to continue to create a, a wide table for many voices to find a seat, uh, to be able to play a role in building. And that's, we've been uniquely good at doing that in the mm -hmm. past at our previous size. Mm -hmm. But as we grow, uh, it's actually equally likely that power becomes more concentrated. I mean, they're like a handful of families own so much of the real estate in New York. Right. <laughs> right? It's like, you can actually be a really big place with fewer people in power, uh, or you can figure out how to be a place where people in power know how to leverage that power for the benefit of other people to have a voice. Um, and that, you know, only time will tell for us. I will say something funny. I was on the uh, first DTO task force years ago for oh, mayor. Cool. It was like the second round of it or something. And I remember us talking about if you could describe uh, Orlando with one word, you know, if Chicago is the windy city <laughs> and New York is money and DC yeah. is power and you could come up with all these things that for every city and man, people were really stumped with Orlando. And now we got this great, uh, the OEP and the visit Orlando's right. campaign, the right. unbelievably real yep. campaign. It kind of takes an attempt at that. But I remember somebody saying, this might've been Phil. He said, um, you know, it's interesting. You ask most people in casual conversations, so what brought you here? And an extraordinary number of people will say something that has to do with family. Mm -hmm. They'll say, my parents lived yep. down here. My wife had family here. Or they'll say, you know, we had kids. We were living in some big city and we thought this might be a great place to raise our kids. It's like, I mean, if you start paying attention, it's more than half of folks will mention some family-related factor. There was a point. career, there was a job, but we'll sweeten the deal sometimes or what was the main draw was some family-related decision. And when you think about some of our legacy of bringing families together on theme parks and entertainment, everything else. That's an interesting term. It's just not as sexy. Mm. It's not as marketable, mm -hmm. maybe. I don't know, but it may be more true about it's us than we realize. Too. It it's is. such a good home base. I feel like that's what we always talk about too. I can't thank you enough for giving us two hours. This has been oh phenomenal. Yeah. I think this is, this is the point we want to get to with our podcast and why we do is to have conversations with individuals like yourself and there's a lot of pride that we have in our community and a lot of pride when we get to meet people like you. So I can't thank you enough. Time can't thank you enough for what you're doing for Orlando. Um, we look forward to in being involved in this community and helping out how we can. Thank um, you. And at the very minimum, spreading the word about the great stuff that Lyft Orlando is doing. Please. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. This has been a privilege.